Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 9. Now concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot ex exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. I just think that's great. That was, I, said, I said, well, I'll pray for us in light of the text, and then people laughed. Father, we're so grateful that we can gather together in the name of your son, Jesus, that we gather together in the power of the Spirit. We're so thankful that we don't have to do this on our own. So thankful that you've promised that you are with us and that you would never leave us nor forsake us. And so to that end, we pray for your help today. Not only today as we, we look at this text and as we worship you, uh, as we celebrate communion and all of of what this gathering entails, but, but help us to live this out that you might be glorified. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, in general, we are in the middle of a series of sermons that we started back in September in 1 Corinthians. And in particular, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, looking at what we saw last week when talked about uh, our status this week we're talking about marriage and our sexuality as it relates to marriage. Next week we're going to look at marriage and divorce. And then the following week we're going to be looking at singleness. Kind of a little mini-series within 1 Corinthians talking about status and relationship. And last week when we were talking about status, I said our identity is in Christ, not our social status. Today I want to say our identity is in Christ, not our relational status. You might be single, you might be dating, you might be engaged, you might be married, you might be divorced, you might be widowed. And in any of those relational situations, you may be happy or sad, content or frustrated or broken or wounded or healed or whole or nervous or excited or thriving or flourishing or lonely and afraid and overwhelmed. I don't know how you feel about the situation that you are in, but know this. All of those relational situations and all of those associated feelings are welcome here. If you feel great in your situation, you do not need to hide that just so that somebody else might feel better. We are called to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so we celebrate that you feel great in the situation that you are in. If you feel broken and shattered in the situation that you are in, you do not need to hide that so that we all might feel comfortable around you. That's a lie. We're called to weep with those who weep. And so you're welcome here. You're welcome to not be okay. It's okay not to be okay. 
but let us join you and work through that with you. Let us love you. I think it's important that all of us in all of our varied situations and all of our varied emotions around all of those varied situations, remember that our identity is in Christ, not our relational status. What I mean is the most important indicator of your value, the most defining truth of who you really are is revealed through your relationship with God. Think of Job. And you all go, that's great. This is great. We're starting. He's going to start with Job. Yes. If you, know, if you know Job, Job is a fairly lengthy book in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with Job, Job is this story of a man who basically lost everything. God allows Job to suffer these tremendous trials where he loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses his health and wellness. And through all the dialogue that we see in this fairly lengthy book, he's having conversations with his friends, he's talking to God, through all of the pain, he loses so much. But do you know what he doesn't lose? He does not lose his relationship with God. He doesn't lose God. See, we often base our identities on lots of secondary things. So when I say your identity is in Christ, this is what I mean. We base our identity a lot of times on things we can lose. And when we lose them, we're devastated. So if you lost everything around you, if you lost your family and your wealth and your job and your health, and and like Job, then after losing all of those things and dialoguing with your friends, you realize your friends actually aren't that helpful. You feel really alone. When everything that you have based your identity upon has been stripped away, I want to ask you the question, who are you? Because I know if God should will that I go through that situation, I know who I am. I'm a Christian. And that can't be taken. Christ City, you can lose everything and have God. And in having God, you have everything you need. Because your identity is in Christ. No secondary identifier. My fundamental identity is in Christ. Not my health, not my wealth, not even my relationship status. No matter what, my identity in Christ cannot be taken from me. But hear this, because this is fundamentally important to us. Because... I am in Christ. See, there was a point when I was not a Christian. There was a point for me when I was not a Christian, but now I am. And so I am what the Bible would say in Christ. I am in relationship with him. He is in me. I am united with him. I walk in relationship with him. I am in Christ. Now listen, because I am in Christ, it means then I relate differently to my health and my wealth and my relationship status. It's different than I did before. I am relating differently to every secondary identifier in my life because my primary identifier is in Christ. Do you see this? Twice in this letter, Paul's going to tell the Corinthians that they were bought with a price. One of them is right before this text, which Sam preached two weeks ago, and the other is in the text that actually comes after this that I preached last week. So sandwiched right in between these two revelations that, that, that the Corinthians, that you, Christ City, have been bought with a price, sandwiched right in between them is what we're looking at today. 
One before the text, one after the text. Just look at what I mean because it helps us to see what I'm trying to say about the way we live differently because of our identity being in Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the second half of verse 19, it says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He, he was talking about fleeing sexual immorality. That's what Paul was addressing here. And instead of, uh, instead of submitting uh, uh, your sexuality to your flesh, to the desires uh, of, of, of your cravings of the flesh and to the sort of worldly systems that are there and being formed by the culture all around you, the, the permissiveness of all the cultural ideas about sexuality that they had in Corinth and that we have today, he's saying, submit your sexuality to the Lordship of Christ. Flee sexual immorality. You're not your own. You, you didn't pay the ransom price for your salvation. Yes, it's a free gift to you by grace through faith in Jesus, but it is a free gift that has a very high price. Jesus' death in your place and for your sins was the ransom price of your salvation. See, the price of your salvation is far too high for you to allow your life to be shipwrecked through sexual immorality. Therefore, he's saying, surrender your sexuality to the lordship of Christ, pursue holiness and glorify God in your body. That's in chapter six. Now in chapter seven, verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. Okay, it was talking about the fact that you should not sell yourself into slavery for a bump in your social status, which is something the Corinthians did. If you were of a low social standing, you could then become a a slave or sell yourself to a human master and through their influence and their status in society, you could climb the social ranking. But you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You did not pay the ransom price of your salvation. It is a free gift to you by grace through faith in Christ, but it is a very costly gift. See, the price of your salvation it's far too high for you to allow your social status to be what consumes you and validates you and gives your life meaning. In both cases, where the scripture says you were bought with a price, in both cases, referring to what you should do with your sexuality and referring to your social status, the defining feature of that is that you didn't pay that you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Your identity is in Christ. And because of that, you are now accountable to obey the loving God who saved you. When you are in Christ, there is a particular way to live. If you're a new creation in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a new creation in Christ. And if you're a new creation in Christ, then you have to live out the new creation ethics. So the way you live your life is determined by your primary identity. And your primary identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, is in Christ. That means, consequently, everything is different with the way you conduct yourself. How you live out your new identity in Christ really deeply matters. Okay? That is what the Corinthians are wrestling with. 
Do you see this? That is what the Corinthians are wrestling with. They're going, okay, we were a hot mess and now we're Christians. Everything should be perfect and easy, right? Wrong. <laughs> a couple thousand years of history will tell you or like the last week of your life. Either way, we were a hot mess and then we became Christians and everything's supposed to be easy, Paul. That's what they're saying to him. Help us understand what's actually going on. See, they're dealing with residual identity stuff that came from the fact that they were primarily formed by the culture of their city, not by their union with Christ. They were primarily formed by the culture of their city, not their relationship with God. So they have all sorts of questions for Paul about how they're supposed to now live. That's the occasion for our text. We're looking at their questions and their misunderstandings. That's why we have 1 Corinthians. Isn't that great? I find it very helpful. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay. Do you see that that's in quotation marks? Sam did a tremendous job of this a couple of weeks ago when he explained the Corinthian slogans. Remember, that was when he said he had to lift a PVC pipe at the gym? Because, you know... He told you that he's not as strong as me. And you said, yes, and the sky is blue, water's wet, other things. He did a great job explaining that there are slogans that the Corinthians were using, and Paul is helping nuance them so that they might understand what it really truly means. So Paul's responding to a letter that the church in Corinth has written and delivered to him. And evidently, they had some folks there who were fond of saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, now it's also clear that the slogan itself has roots in what would have been a, a belief about a superior spiritual way to live. That there was a superior spirituality that you could chase after as far as like one way of life is more spiritual than another. And they were tying that to their sexuality. So let me ask, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Not a trick question, Christ City. But it needs to be nuanced. Well, yeah, that's good if he's not married. Then that would be a true statement. But is it always good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? And you go, is this another trick question? It's not. If he's married, that's awesome. I'm teaching the premarital course right now. Week one had nothing to do with our sexuality, but I talked about it anyways because it's a great gift. My, my job when I teach premarital is to completely blow up any preconceived understandings of what people think about marriage, and so we're having a great time already. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Well, if he's married, that's actually a problem, and that's what we're going to see in the text. It seems that they were arguing that celibacy, whether for a married person or an unmarried person, was a spiritually superior way to live. But, but here's what you need to know. Either way, it says nothing about the superiority of marriage or singleness. This is not a status game. And that's the problem is the Corinthians were always bringing this idea of their status and they were bringing that to bear upon their life in Christ. And he's actually saying, no, 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 you need to dethrone your idea of status, enthrone Christ, and you will then understand how you should live. Don't chase status. And so you think one, one way to live is, is holier than the other. And so now you're going to pursue that even though you're married. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. 
Your identity is in Christ, not your relational status. Look at verse seven. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind, one of one kind and one of another. Okay, Paul's single. He's saying, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So marriage, as we're going to see in this text, and it's going to be talked about as monogamous, lifelong union with deep mutuality between husband and wife, that is an amazing gift from God. And so is singleness. Understood rightly, as we see in this text, singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. And I just want to say that the statement that marriage is a gift from God and the statement that singleness is a gift from God, both of those statements would have been countercultural to people living in the city of Corinth in the first century. Look what he says, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, we have a whole sermon coming up in two weeks talking about singleness. So I don't want to do a deep dive on that here, but I do want to touch on a few things that are very important to understanding this text. This text is not a diminishment of marriage in favor of celibate singleness. Paul is not diminishing marriage in favor of celibate singleness. It's actually a recommendation for marriage for singles who have the desire to be married. Okay, people have confused this text and done really weird things with it for hundreds of years, thousands of years. This text is also not a diminishment of celibate singleness in favor of marriage. It's actually saying that singleness is great for those who have received the gift of self-control to abstain from sexual activity, which is a gift that Paul has received and wholeheartedly recommends. I have a friend who is a pastor. Feels this. He's single. I don't even know if he's ever had a girlfriend. He's never dated. He does not burn with passion, as the text is talking about. He just serves and loves people, <laughs> makes disciples, has no desire to marry, believes God's given him this good, right, and beautiful gift of singleness. And then church folks come along and they're like, what's wrong with him? <laughs> well, nothing. What's wrong is we have a bad understanding of singleness in the church. This text is not diminishing singleness. It is elevating singleness in a way that in the world then, and I would say even in the world now, in a way that is very countercultural. So some of you might feel the same. You might feel that you have no plans for marriage. You have no desire to get married. I just want you to hear it. That is good and right and beautiful. Hey? But some of you are single and you are ready to mingle. Now, let me tell you, the Bible talks about how you can live your life too. Like, like, I became a Christian when I was 19, almost 20, and I knew immediately that I did not have this gift. Because I met Allison about the same time, and I was like, what's up? Like, I did not really date as a Christian. I met Allison and started dating her, like, 
almost at the same time I got saved. I knew this was not for me. I didn't have to wrestle through whether God was calling me to a life of singleness or not. I knew right away that it was very good for me to get married, preferably as soon as possible. So those of you who are single and desire to be married, verse nine in this text says, you should get married. That's what it says. So let me recap, okay? This is like a little decision tree. I love it. Are you single? Yes. Do you want to stay single? Yes. Great. It is good and right and beautiful. You can serve God and stay single. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay. Are you single? Yes. Do you want to stay single? No. <laughs> Great. That is good and right and beautiful. You should get married. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, Paul is recognizing here in the text that those who are single may have sexual desires. And that those sexual desires are not necessarily destructive. You can have a holy sexual desire. I want to be married. I want to enter into a marital union. This is saying, that's great. Paul is recognizing the, sexually desire, the, the sexual desires of those who are single and want to be married, and he is giving direction on how they can handle themselves. So if you're single and you want to be married, great. If you're already married, then this text is now going to tell us how to live out those sexual desires faithfully before God. You look terrified. If you're single and you don't want to be married, awesome. If you're single and you want to be married, pay attention because this is what it's going to look like. And if you're married, this text is for you, okay? Back to the slogan. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay? Be patient with the poor Corinthians, okay? I know this has come up in some of the community groups. I'm like, these guys are stupid. <laughs> yeah, they've been Christians for a minute. And there was no Christianity before where they lived. So it wasn't like they had generations of people forming their understanding of how to serve God. They've been Christians for like a couple of years. So you got to be a little bit patient with them. And then also have a look in the mirror because... I don't know about you, 1 Corinthians seems a lot like Christ City to me. I have a fairly good insight onto our church, and at times, I've said all of the things in here. So we need to be a little bit patient with them. Like Paul was single when he planted the church, and he was celibate, and he lived with them for a couple of years, and so maybe their reasoning that abstaining from sex is, is actually a holier way to live, because that's what Paul was doing. Maybe that's their, their thought, I don't know. Maybe they think sex is a dirty necessity for procreation. You shouldn't enjoy it. That that was a thought at that time in the world. It's actually still a thought in our world. Maybe they were thinking uh, in line with the Greek philosophers who had a massive influence in Corinth, who, who believed that they were, maybe they thought that the philosophers were really onto something when they said like your spirit or your soul is good, but your body's bad. So anything you do with your body, you gotta be really suspect of. Therefore, you shouldn't enjoy bodily stuff too much because you want to be a spiritual person. Okay? That for sure was floating around in the ether of Corinth at the time of Paul's writing. 
Now, I don't know which one of those reasons they wrote this and asked this question. I wasn't there. Uh, surprise. But I'm glad they asked the question because through their question, I, we, we do get this really important passage on marriage. Don't you see God's providence in all of these things? Isn't it beautiful that the church in Corinth struggled with something that 2,000 years later we're talking about and I think is going to be a deep encouragement to you who are married and you who want to be married? God's very kind to us. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, all we're going to do, break down this passage, look at it verse by verse. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he's saying each man should have one wife and each woman should have one husband. Because sexual desire is part and a natural part of being human, but that sexual desire is to be enjoyed exclusively within the confines of a lifelong covenantal marriage between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. You should have one wife. Ladies should have one husband. Again, revolutionary. Let me tell you what this is not saying. Okay, singles. If you are in habitual sexual sin before you get married, marriage will not solve your sin problem. I've been doing this pastoral thing for long enough to know that a lot of you think all of your sexual fire that burns within you that is manifesting currently in your singleness in a sinful way, you think that that day when you walk to the altar and give your life to someone else in marriage before God and all your friends and family, that all of a sudden, all of that's gonna disappear. I'll tell you, the opposite is usually true. It usually gets worse. Deal with your sexual sin before you get married. Repent of it, crucify your flesh, and walk in holiness. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's what this is not saying. It is, it, it's saying you're, you need to submit your sexual desires to the lordship of Christ. See, because your identity is in Christ, not your relational status, it doesn't matter what your relational status is. You need to submit your sexuality to the Lordship of Christ. So if you've been married for 55 years or something in here, and, and you've got a bit of a fire burning in you sexually that you need to repent of because you're taking it outside the confines of your marriage, then repent. Because of the sexual temptations in the world, it's good for us to have one spouse. It's saying marriage is the holy and pure outlet for your sexual desires. It is not saying that marriage will solve the problem of your sexual sin. You need to repent of your sin now. You need to get your heart right now. You need to do that if you're single before you get married. And if you are married, you need to do that now. Okay, sex is purposed to be enjoyed within the confines of a monogamous marriage. And outside of that, there is no avenue for you. When you say yes to one spouse, you have said no to every other person in the world. 
When I said yes to Allison, I said no to every other woman on the planet. When Allison said yes to Brett, she said no to every other man on the planet. Sex is purposed to be enjoyed within the confines of a monogamous marriage. But since it seems that some of the Corinthians thought that they should stay single for spiritual reasons, even while they burned with sexual desire, Paul is saying, look, it's actually okay to get married. And if you are, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her, body, her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, if you lived in first century Corinth, the first half of that verse, in verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, the first half, everyone's going, okay, yeah, yeah, just like everybody else in Corinth. You don't need to be a Christian to have that be true. And then he continues, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And all the men in the church in Corinth went, what? What's this Christianity thing I signed up for? This is different. A man should have his own wife. He should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And he should know as it relates to sex, she has authority over his body. A woman should have her own husband. She should give her husband his conjugal rights. She should know as it relates to sex that he is an authority over her body. This is the beauty of biblical mutuality in marriage. Historical sociologists um, like Rodney Stark, who research things like um, the life of women in the first century in the Greco-Roman Empire, <laughs> they would tell you that with great certainty, there was nowhere else in first century Corinth where the rights of women were elevated so high as they were in the church of Jesus Christ. Nowhere. Just look at verse 4 again. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Okay, what does that mean? This, it means that the husband is not free to do whatever he wants with his body as it relates to sex. The wife holds the authority over what he does with his sexuality. This means the wife's not free to do whatever she wants with her body as it relates to sex. The husband holds the authority over what she does with her sexuality. One guy that was um, teaching a course when Allison and I were very first married, he said, what that means is that you've given up your rights and you've given up your authority to your spouse and that all you retain in terms of authority over your body is, is the janitorial rights. That's all you've got. You just keep it clean. You just get in there and do a good job. Everything else is hers. Hey, it's not like a weird thing where I call Allison and I'm like, hey, I was thinking about having a burger for lunch. I don't know what you think because like this is your body. Don't be weird. Okay. Also, I'm going to have a burger. I'd, if that was true, I'd be in so much better shape. It'd be amazing, actually. Probably be amazing for me if I did that. But that's not what it means. It's talking about as it pertains to sexuality. You're not free to just cruise around and do whatever you want. Your wife has authority over your body. Wives, your husband has authority over your body as it pertains to your sexuality. Now listen, this authority is not exploitive. This authority is not controlling. This authority is not domineering. 
This authority is not a means of using the other person sexually. Now it's talking about a married couple living out of the oneness of their marriage as it pertains to sexuality. People have misused this verse of scripture to do horrible things to their spouse. Okay. This text is not the entirety of the teaching of marriage in the Bible. This text actually is not even Paul's entire teaching of marriage for what he has written in scripture. We look at Genesis to Revelation to understand what marriage is and we apply this truth in light of everything else that is said. This is a non-exploitive, non-controlling, non-domineering, non-manipulative truth that a couple submits to one another sexually. Think of it like in the Garden of Eden before humanity fell into sin. God made Adam and Eve to perfectly complement one another and this was Adam's response, Genesis 2.24. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, they became one flesh. It's a total union of husband and wife. Husband and wife are created to perfectly complement each other as two who have now become one. And it is in the consummation of this covenant that they have made before God, the consummation of that covenant through the sexual act, that they become one. So listen, it makes sense that in their oneness, they actually belong to each other. Husband should have his own wife and a wife should have her own husband. So it makes sense that in their oneness, they belong to each other and that they even have rights they can expect from the other and that they have authority over each other. Again, not in a non-controlling, non-domineering way, but the authority they've exchanged is a means of continually advancing their oneness in marriage. Oneness is actually the goal. Mutuality in marriage, as we see in this text, is the means to that end. The end is that you walk as two who have become one. Now, Paul's not done in the text because there are things that hinder the oneness of a couple. And he wants them to be on guard for anything that would destroy or chip away at the oneness they have in Christ and in, in, in their marriage. He wants them to be aware and on guard. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you to be, <clears throat> because of your lack of self-control. Okay, I want to be really clear. A lack of sex never justifies sexual immorality. So just take that excuse and throw it in the trash where it belongs. I've counseled enough couples in my time as a pastor. A lack of sex never justifies sexual immorality. At the same time, Paul says a lack of sex in marriage will certainly leave you open to that temptation. Those are both true statements. You need to fight for the oneness of your marriage. Your goal is to care about the holiness of your spouse in every area of life, but 
in the context of our scripture, talking about sexual holiness. The goal is that you are working for the advancement of the holiness of your spouse because two have become one. Further, sex should never be used as a tool of manipulation. If you use sex to get what you want, you have actually diminished the beauty of the mutuality of marriage and you are hindering oneness in your marriage. You need to repent, apologize to your spouse, reconcile that difference. Um, Allison and I do a lot of premarital counseling and we end up in enough conversations of marriage counseling. Um, one of the things that we, we always get asked, usually in premarital and then sometimes after people are married, how often should we be having sex? This is one of the texts that I always go to where it says, do not deprive each other. So we use a phrase that we say, sex in your marriage should be frequent and enjoyable. And I'm not putting a number on that frequency. There's one pastor who I know who said, you take, you take the, the number that the husband thinks per week and you take the number that the wife thinks per week and then add them together and that's your number per week. He was a great man. It says you can hold off on sex by agreement for a limited time so that you can devote yourself to prayer. All right? So if your prayer life's really rich and you have a very agreeable spouse, wonderful. It does not say that you can put off having sex based upon your own decision for as long as you want because you're binge watching things on Netflix or gaming. So, so when somebody says to me in, the, in, the, in a marriage counseling conversation, well, I just don't, I, I, you know, I don't want to have sex. Okay, well, like, let's get underneath the surface on that and find out why, because there's some very powerful reasons why that could be true. And we want to walk through those and we want to see health and wholeness and healing come to people who have that kind of thing going on. But it's by agreement for a limited time so you can devote yourself to prayer. It's, it's not because you don't want to. So let's talk about that. Let's walk through that because I want the oneness of your marriage to be a rich and enjoyable thing. Okay, where have we been? Well, this text is acknowledging that human beings have sexual desires. It lays out two pathways of what you can do with that desire. One, you can stay single and remain celibate. This is the gift of God. Two, you can get married. This is also the gift of God. Those are your options. Both pathways are good and right and beautiful when they are done in submission to God and neither is more spiritual than the other. The text says that those sexual desires are to be expressed in a monogamous heterosexual marriage of mutual submission where oneness is the goal, where you do not withhold sex from your spouse but give to them their conjugal rights knowing that when you are married your spouse has authority over your body in terms of what you do with it sexually which means you are not free to express your sexual desire beyond the confines of your covenant marriage okay and you go why does all this talk about the faithfulness in marriage and faithfulness with our sexual union what why does all of that matter so much christ city your marriage is not about you. That's the simplicity of it. Marriage is ultimately not about you. 
It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the text from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 that we already looked at. Verse 32 says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ City, your marriage is not ultimately about you. Paul's quoting Genesis 2, which we looked at earlier here, where we talk about two becoming one. He says that marriage is a profound mystery. It is a mega mysterion. He says the mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. Christ City, marriage is God's idea. Marriage is not primarily about you. Marriage is a living parable of the gospel. Marriage is not primarily about you because marriage points to Jesus and his church. One commentator said, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. See, it's not like the writers of scripture were thinking, man, we need a metaphor that will properly explain the relationship between Jesus and the church. What metaphor should we pick? Hey, marriage works. It's not how it came about. It's the other way around. Marriage is patterned after the eternal relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage points us to the greater reality at play here, which consequently, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, is why singleness in the church of Jesus Christ is elevated so high as well. Because ultimately, we are all the bride of Christ. The Bible begins with a wedding between our first parents. The Bible ends with a wedding between Jesus and his church at the very end of time. And so it stands to reason that marriage is not ultimately about you. But how you handle marriage and how you handle your sexuality reveals what you believe to be true about the gospel. See, all of this matters because your identity is in Christ. Amen.